Welcome to another edition of Slay Foundation Presents The Power of Storytelling, hosted by me, Shane Adams. Today I'm joined by an all-around cool guy, Federico Galarraga. He has the tats, the biceps, the enviable beard, and the experience in growing up in one of the most, if not the most, dangerous places in the world, Venezuela. I first met him when he was growing a company he co-founded named Cool Fridge, an awesome meal delivery company, but today we can go all the way back to his long-haired, don't-care rockstar days in Venezuela before escaping to the U.S. So what does he do? He gets his electrical engineering degree from the University of Houston in Texas. He made his guitar amp, but then landed a job at the big, prestigious blue-chip company known as IBM. Shortly, though, he leaves to start his entrepreneurial journey. So don't miss out on hearing Feta's unique journey in this episode of The Power of Storytelling. Well, Feta, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you could come by. I was really excited to have you come into the office uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, you grew up in Venezuela, and secondly... I know you're big into working out, so I really want to know kind of what your workout routine is. So let me just start it with, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I actually didn't. I've been doing intermittent fasting every few days. Uh, I've heard it's good for the muscles. I give them a spasm. Like some days, my usual breakfast is six eggs and three strips of bacon. Uh, But then some days I don't have any breakfast. Today is one of those days. So with intermittent fasting, are you just, is that where you don't eat food like all day or just you just skip breakfast I can't go all day without eating but I just try to go as far as I can usually till like two or three and then I just get too hangry uh, and my business partner she's like you need to eat something I can't work with you today <laughs> I'm like Danny DeVito from the Snickers commercials <laughs> I don't eat my breakfast I just I, I am angry all day. I'm annoyed, especially if I have to drive somewhere in this Austin traffic. Then it's you just get stuck. I'm a, I'm a big breakfast person. I like to to kind of change it. Breakfast the biggest meal of the day, then a little bit smaller, and then dinner the lightest. But again, just trying the intermittent fasting every like two days uh, a week. So what's that supposed to do? If I remember correctly, it's like you, you want to keep shocking your body, your system with things. So uh, that's one way of, of doing it. Just you, I try to eat between 3,000 to like 4,000 calories, 5,000 if I can, every day. So one day I don't and the body's like, oh wait, this is a little different today. And apparently, supposedly that's a good thing. Uh, like the place that, I, one of the places that I work out, they do um, temperature shock therapy. So right after working out, you oh, jump yeah. into a tub with ice and immediately go into a sauna. And I think like you do it a couple times. So it's just like shocking the body in different ways. It just sounds like these are people that are like, okay, how can we make money? And how can we just screw with people? Um, yeah, so let's freeze them and then dry them out. And tell them that it's, it's, it's a good idea to build muscle. And the, I mean, you'll do it, right? You're like, well, why not? And you give it a try. Uh, so you said it was one of your gyms, meaning you go to multiple gyms? Yeah, so I, I do CrossFit from Monday through Thursday, and then I do Gold's Gym from Friday to Saturday. And on Sundays, I do yoga, and uh, based on the workload, I'll try to get some little bit of boxing if I can. 
Oh, nice. So you work out pretty much every day. Yeah, I, I try to work out every day. Have you ever thought about shocking your body and not working out one day? See, the thing is, <laughs> I'm not married. Okay. <laughs> and I want to get married. So it, competition in Austin is, is, or there is a lot of competition in Austin. So I'm like, okay, I, I need to stay in tip-top shape, try to make myself the best kind of man I can from every angle. Then after I get married, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I can let go. So let me ask you about that. So you're saying since you're not married, you need to stay in tip-top shape to compete yeah. and, and get the girl. Yeah. Right? So what? Uh, why do you think you think that way? Like, is it like growing up? Is that something that, like, was there somebody you idolized and then it was, it was a really fit person who got the girl? What, what do you think? So it, it, it's a combination of things. So I grew up in Venezuela. Latino country, so looks are very important there. Uh, and I was a fat kid. I was really like, like what kind of fat are we talking about? Like 190 pounds when I was 11. And how tall were you? Uh, I don't know, five five, five six. Oh wow. Um, okay, so you did you get made fun of? So kid? this is interesting, and this is something because I moved here when I was 17. Um, bullying is is different over there. It's not. I mean, kids tease each other, and and yeah, some. I have maybe a little bit, but not nearly how it gets described here. So I, I did not experience how how it happens here. Um, like, it, were you ever beat up as a kid? No. Did you ever get in a fight? Oh, I, I, I would <laughs> instigate okay. fights, but it wasn't it wasn't because of bullying anybody. It was more. Uh, the the jocks, I guess, the, the soccer players. They, they thought they were like the hottest shit and I didn't like that. So I would kind of like get in their way and then they would try to, uh, it's like, hey, what you doing? It's like, oh, you, you want to go? <laughs> so it, it, it's just more like, um, what's it called? Peacocking, I think is the term. Just like sure. the, 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 the clicks butting heads. They weren't even clicks. It was just, it was just the jocks, basically, the, the soccer players. Uh, but I, I haven't played soccer for a while. So high school... Where I'm from, or in Venezuela, is is it's kind of different from from what it is here, and it's been, it's been funny meeting people that that did go to school here and hearing all the different experiences, especially depending on where they grew up, like which city, and um, like which which grade. I don't know. It's, it's very interesting here because over over there is very uniform. Um, kids don't get to pick their classes. You don't have lockers. You don't have transition. You stay in a classroom from seven a.m. until twelve. And that's it. Teachers move. Uh, you're not the one that moves. So you're. So you only go to school five hours a day. Is that right? Yeah, from seven till twelve, twelve or twelve thirty. Yeah, yeah. And then you get one recess. And is that is that high school? Do they have K through twelve like we do? It's uh, it yeah. It's K through eleven. I think we have one less year. Uh, okay. from over here but it's all connected the schools have it all in one go so you don't go to one school and then another school and then another school uh, like my school it, it was divided so the kids that were 15 weren't hanging out with the kids that were um, seven and eight um, but but you could see them it was they we were in the same facility and it was actually funny um, in the um, in the talk that I gave I found a picture online and it looks like a prison. It, it, it's funny looking back because I, I, <laughs> your school looked like a prison. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like as a kid, that's what I thought it was. 
kind of yeah every, right? every I mean, kid thinks like, at school I'm stuck here right? I couldn't leave right I'd get in trouble if I left I had to do what I was told I mean it, it really is kind of like a prison yeah. I suppose but yeah. then again so is like real world yeah too right Your work is a prison too. yeah so uh that's why I think that's why also I like working out it's the only place that especially with CrossFit like a lot of the, these gyms are out in the open so it gives you a chance to do something a little bit outside since now everything like yeah school inside work inside unless you you have a job that it's outdoors you don't get really get to do much of anything outdoors that is not leisurely it's it this gets to be productive and still be outside so i'm i'm thinking that when you were growing up so you were the the fat kid right no 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 they were they were way fatter thankfully Wait, okay. i i didn't have like a big gut i was just I just balloon. Have you seen like the Michelin Man, the the the, the mascot, sure. like this 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 guy made out of tires? He's just like bulky all over. That that's how I was. But anyway, I was I was. But you weren't the the soccer player. The soccer player, right? Those and guys. It have, sounds like the soccer players were the ones that kind of got underneath your skin. Yeah. Just yeah. because maybe were they getting the the girls? Oh, they were getting the attention. The attention all, all over. Right? So not just girls, but. <laughs> Everybody wanted to be friends with them. The exactly. teachers were probably nicer to them yeah. to some extent. So now I, I feel like maybe you're, you know, you're compensating for that. You're yeah. Trying, you're like, you know what? Now I have the ability, the to, tools, the tools to, to get into shape. And yeah. Yeah. And again, like being a Latin American country, uh, the, the girls were very, like looks were very important. Uh, you also have to be, uh, hairless which was very <laughs> difficult for me as, as you can a, see as a guy yeah yeah uh so like going through puberty was that well the thing is most like that's, that's kind of a weird topic but was that something <laughs> like i remember my buddy i was kind of younger one of my grade but my best friend he started getting like armpit hair or something and like but that was kind of a sign of maturing was that still a positive sign or were, well, were you guys like shaving see the thing was high like, school so my my heritage is spanish not latino well it's actually 75 percent, 25 percent, 23 me whatever uh but i'm very hairy compared to most people i couldn't i couldn't tell <laughs> really no <laughs> um so i hit i also hit puberty really really young like eight so i was I was growing beard by the time I was not not th not like this, but by the time I was you woke up out of the wound, full. <laughs> like full I was beard. starting to get a little bit of chest hair when I was eleven. 11. Yeah, and so it was. I think they all knew, like, okay, you know, a man is supposed to have some hair, but not only was I growing too much for the standards over there, it just came out really young. So back to the bullying thing, like I wasn't really bullied in a way that I. It, 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 you don't think it really affected you? What affect? She, she, this is interesting. Um, it made me realize, oh, um, there's something different. And if I want to fit in, I get to decide, do I want to do something about it or not? So in that regard, I was like, okay, you know, I'll shave. So I did. And then it went away. But they knew that I was the, the hairy kid. Uh, so now, back to the compensating thing, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> letting it all like, you know what, I'm just going to let it grow. Uh, but also, it was, a, 
it was a Catholic school. So I had to wear a uniform. I had to be very clean shaven. I had to like ha have my hair in a certain way, shirt tucked in, like it was very strict. So yeah, no, I think you're completely right. Ever since I graduated, it's just been uh, compensating for everything. The moment I graduated, I grew my hair down to my belly button. I actually, I actually saw a picture of yours. It looked like maybe you were in high school. You looked like somebody straight out of an 80s rock band. You had the long hair, you had the bandana, you had the guitar. Like what was, what was that all about? How old were you? What made you get into so, yeah, that it was, look and you know, guitars and so forth? The last year of, of, of school was, I was 16, 17. That's when I started growing it. Uh, I was like, you know what, I'm graduating. And again, I was never allowed to have long hair. It had to be like this specific cut. So, so I just said, no, I need, I need to take advantage of this opportunity. So uh, I was also playing guitar in a rock band and then I was, it, it, it fit the theme. Uh, and I was really, I'm still into rock, but specifically, I guess back then, like the eighties glam rock, Guns N' Roses, Poison, Motley Crue. So that- And those were all big down there in Venezuela. No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, no. it would, over there, it's just merengue, salsa, reggaeton, and um, I was never into any of that. So how did you get into kind of the American 80s rock scene? So my parents, um, they actually got PhDs in the US and they were very big into American culture, I guess, or, or they brought it back, at least the music. So in my household, I grew up listening to Pink Floyd, Rush, Led Zeppelin, yes, which further made it very obvious when I went to school that I was different from the rest of the kids because they had never heard anything like that. It was, again, those um, Latino music. So uh, I guess when I had to make a decision like, hey, I'm different here, do I want to change into this type of music? And this was one of the things I said, no, I like, I like this type of music. And uh, most of my friends didn't understand. They, they, they did not like my music at all. I, in fact, we didn't get many people to play concerts in Venezuela, but um, whenever somebody came and I, I had to convince friends, like, please come, I, I wanna go by myself. Right. Uh, so can you please come with me? Uh, but yeah, I was, the, the rock thing, it was a very separated group uh, from- So you were in a band though, so you, you had at least a few people I had to convince. Con see, but I had to convince them. And that's where I started realizing, ah, you know, maybe I have some ability to like talk my way into things because one guy, he played the piano. And it's like, dude, you, know, you want to play keyboards for like a, like a rock band. And then another guy, um, I, it's like, hey, don't you want to play bass? Like chicks dig guys in a band. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got him. And then he got interested purely on, on that. And then there was one guy that he was really into heavy, heavy metal, he wanted to play drums. So it's like, perfect, I got my band. Uh, and we didn't do anything major, <laughs> obviously. Um, but it was right as I was finishing uh, high school, uh, those last two years. And then I just kept the hair long for all, all of college when I was here in the US, uh, which was a bad idea. Women in Texas do not like men with long hair. It depends. I feel like now there's the whole 
like hipster movement. Yeah, right? the man so, bun. So you need the man bun if you're gonna have long hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, sh- I now I look at him like if I just had waited a few more years. Uh, but it's starting to thin out, so I guess it was a good idea that I cut it out. So you said your parents both came to the States to mm-hmm. get their PhDs. Yeah. What, uh, where did they go and what did they get them in? Uh, they, um, they're chemical engineers, so um, I don't know exactly what their thesis was about, but it was in chemical engineering. Uh, it was at the University of Maryland. Uh, okay. that's, that's where they got them. And it was my mom and my dad... They got divorced when I was one and a half, and uh, my mom, they both remarried other people. Uh, funny enough, my stepdad also got a PhD in the U.S. in chemical engineering at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Is that... Okay, so d- they didn't meet? No, they, they the met, they met uh, later. Okay. Uh, my mom and my stepdad. But it was just funny that I have four parents... Right. Three of them have chemical engineering PhDs from and, the U.S. And what do you have? Just a bachelor's in electrical engineering. Okay. I wasn't trying to give you shit. <laughs> but they so, give me. So chemical engineering, electrical engineering. So in the kind of the atmosphere I grew up in, my dad was a bricklayer. So he was outside every day laying bricks. I used to help him as a kid. And in the summer, uh, I, would, I would help him. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she sometimes like cleaned hotel rooms or washed windows. One time she opened up a, a daycare to babysit kids. But for me, when I heard about, I guess when I started thinking about college a little bit and, and heard about degrees, or I heard some people going for like electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, even you know, chemical engineering, I thought, for instance, electrical engineer, I thought that's what people went to school for if they want to be like a really good electrician. Because building these houses and like hotels my dad did as a bricklayer, there were always like different craftsmen and one of them was was electrician. electrician. So I'm like, oh, why would I go to college to be an electrician? So I had had no idea. They don't explain to you what what a lot of the majors, like what you can do with those degrees. They, They just, uh, yeah, exactly that. And especially electrical engineering. Within my own family, they would ask me like, well, you can fix my fridge now, like my grandma. Like, <laughs> right. you, you know, my fridge, my fridge broke. Like, grandma, you need an electrician, not an electrical engineer. Uh, so can you? Fix a fridge? Do you know, like, do you learn, like, the basics of, I guess, electricity? And you can do it, but it's, it's like asking, I don't know, an attorney to look over a terms of agreement no because in that case a a lawyer would be like oh this is this is too easy for me uh, an electrician i i can't do i would say 80 percent of job that an electrician can they have a, a, a an expertise in, in their in the trade that we don't we don't receive it's more like asking um a mechanical engineer that has designed an engine to work at a at a mechanic shop so they're connected but it's just it's a different set of 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 skills but yeah i mean i wouldn't disappoint grandma so it's like okay i know how to measure voltage and and currents and and i knew the basics so that's kind of like what i applied um and um i think one time i that one time I, i did figure it out or at least i could 
pinpoint what's wrong. It's like, okay, you need to buy this part. Usually when something breaks, uh, that's electric. Turn it off, turn it back on. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, it's, if it has any electricity, it's probably something that, that died and you need to replace it. Um, so it, w- it was interesting growing up in a household that was just full of engineers and they would always joke that you know they didn't choose to be engineers. The engineering life chose them. Um, so, but your experience is probably seeing firsthand put in a ton of hard work constantly, right? Yeah, for me, um, you know, I went to college primarily because I had a goal when I was 13 that I wanted to make a million dollars, to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. So my parents, they separated when I was about 10. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think when I was about 13, they got a divorce. But they would fight, I mean, just I feel like a lot of parents, they would fight about all sorts of things, but especially about money. Money was always kind of an issue for us because we didn't have much of it. Whether it was like our electricity getting turned off or, you know, my mom spending money on like our dog food when like we couldn't pay the bills or getting evicted from, you know, the latest apartment, uh, not having money for gas. It was always, I feel like a lot of fights stemmed from money. And so for me, when I was 13, I said, you know what, if I have a million dollars, then my I'm not gonna have wife, money. I'm not going to hopefully get in a fight with. And you know, sure enough, that, that turns out to be the case, except now we just fight about stupid little things. <laughs> you know, it's not fighting about not having money, it's fighting about everything else. But at least I know, you know we won't ever worry about being homeless or not having food. Which on is, I mean, there's the, um, I think I might be butchering this. I, I dated a psychologist for a while, uh, the Maslow Pyramid of Needs. And there's just the level of stress that certain uh, needs cost in a human. And the closer to the base, just those things can really create an impact uh, in, in a stressful situation in somebody's uh, life. And of course, knowing that you have a base, a home, a place that's not going to get taken away, uh, that's at the very bottom. And then you start piling up. So right. you can have a lot of these like problems that are higher up. And yeah, they create stress, but these are the ones that can make you really like not sleep at night and have a, a really just bad time getting out of bed. Oh yeah. And I mean, as far as like working hard, I mean, my parents worked really hard, especially my dad just doing that right. manual physical labor every day, uh, literally just busting his butt yeah. to put food on the table. And that's something when we helped him out and that was something I realized what tough work it was. And I thought he made pretty good money growing up, but once I started realizing how much money can be made and the different ways to make money, I realized you could work uh, a lot less hard, especially physically, like labor intensive hard, and and frankly make a lot more money um, and and have that financial security independence by doing a lot of different things, not like using your actual hands to, to create money. Which, which part of the U.S. did you grow up so in? So I grew up outside of St. Louis in, in St. Charles County. So it was kind of like suburban area. Maybe similar to probably like a Georgetown. Okay. To Austin. Okay. So like 30 miles outside of the city. Gotcha. Um, kind of suburban. So. 
do you watch I, I'm, I'm, this connects to this uh, to what you're saying do you watch like architecture shows now that they're big on Netflix have you seen any like HGTV I've, I've seen that Treehouse Masters show I oh. think where, where this dude has a really quirky personality but he ends up making like tree houses that are like legit like houses. proper yeah yeah like legit houses not it's like not a tree, tree house. house it's a house that happens to be on a tree exactly well yeah. i'm asking because there's a few i i find myself that as i get older and i want to hang out with with the person that i'm dating like that's why we end up watching like those <laughs> uh, oh, hgtv right. shows but anyway there's there's a few um i forget the name but now, it seems like there's been a revival or at least in the public eye of architecture and the manual hard work that goes into like masonry and bricklaying. And I remember, uh, I mean, and these are multi-million dollar homes. And I remember seeing an episode of that they had trouble finding a bricklayer that knew how to do that specific pattern. It was, there were only like three left in, 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 wow. in like the area. It, it was in Europe. And, um, the, the, the guy was almost revered, considered like such an expert that he still knew how to, how to do that manual work. And again, the pattern that, that he knew how to, how to lay and, and, uh, and he was paid very, very handsomely. So I was just curious if you had seen anything like that and then you, if it brought any like memories, if, it, if your dad was ever treated like that or has it just been like, oh crap, now, now it's almost like being a bricklayer is, has been romanticized and people are paying a lot of money to go back to these old techniques that right. don't, don't get used anymore. I think, so growing up, we would, when we would go driving around, uh, my dad would point out like all the places <laughs> he worked on. Like, gotcha. oh, I built that corner <laughs> at that Hardee's or I built that corner of the, the recplex that we had, uh, which was like a big gymnasium. Um, and we would always go to, uh, we didn't have much money, but one of the things that I guess would be fun to do as a family, would we would go to open houses. Um, and these weren't even open houses of like multi-million dollar sure. homes, right? These were open houses of, you know, the equivalent today of maybe like a $300,000 house. So like a, a really nice, but just uh, like a, a middle income type sure. of home. And we would just look at them and like my dad could appreciate all the architecture, all the brickwork. It'd always have to be full masonry. That's... There was a house where it was like half siding or brick in the front, but then siding around the house. He would hate it. It'd be like, <laughs> like cutting corners. Yeah, to him. yeah. Um, but but I do. I'm kind of envious though, and I think probably a lot of guys are like using your hands, being able to like build or create something is a very kind of masculine yeah. type of thing. Um, and sometimes I wish I was better at that. Like even growing up, um, I used to have to change the clutch out of my car because mm. I didn't have the money. My clutch went out on my car. So I had to fix it myself. Yourself, yeah, figure it now, out. Now, I wouldn't even consider trying to do that myself. Yeah, like no, I don't want to screw up my, my car. But it, it, it I mean, necessity is the mother of, of all inventions. And something that I've, I've realized, like n now looking back, um, and it's so interesting how as you grow older, you start looking back and appreciate things that you didn't even consider uh, when you were younger. And I feel like when I talk to people and, and friends that they've left Venezuela, most people, most of my friends have had to uh, leave since, since I've left. I mean, there's almost an exodus. When's the last time you've been... 
to Venezuela? Ooh, eight years ago, I think. Uh, I used to, after I left with my mom and my stepdad um, because we were in danger, pretty much. And um, we, we left and we landed in, in Houston. That was the city that, that took us in. Um, but my dad was still there. And I would, since I didn't have my mom's last name because she remarried, I could go back and the airport wouldn't flag me. The, 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 sure. the, the, the ones that were in trouble were my mom and, and my stepdad. So um, I would go back during winter break and summer break to see my friends, see my dad. It was, it, it was the, the cultural shock was, it was very unexpected, I thought. I understood American values. I had been to the U.S. many times before. My English wasn't that great, but but I understood it perfectly. But it was, yeah, the the, the difference in society, and I guess because of the age that, that I moved, I, I was seventeen, and I started college that the week that I moved. So I didn't have any period of getting adjusted to America, right. and it was at that period that everybody's kind of like still learning and cementing society rules and like ways to interact with each other and it's not like i would be just walking down the street and it's like oh how does anything work but th that's what, what caught me off guard it was the little details on how people interact and make connections that because i hadn't grown up here i i didn't know and it's just so so different best example is you know over there we give a kiss on the cheek when you meet a a woman here Hopefully you didn't I, try that. So I, I, I forgot. I forgot that that is not a thing here. And when I met somebody in class I, and I went for it, she was Egyptian. And thankfully, she's used to that. And actually, they do one on each side. So, okay. But then she, she was caught off guard. And then I realized, oh, my God, I can't do that here. And it was j just something as simple as that. Um, or like over there when you're in class, if you go to a, a class and you don't know anybody... By the time you leave, everybody's like, hey, so what are we, what are we doing? Like, let's go grab a beer. Let's go do something. It's an, it's an immediate let's, let's bond that's right. almost implied. But here in America, that wasn't the case at all. You finish class and then you have some, most people bolt to another class or they have other stuff to do. Uh, they have responsibilities. They have, yeah, no, nobody's there to, to socialize. You know what that, that makes me think of? I, I've noticed this. I noticed this first, I was living in Kansas City and, and we went driving to some place that was kind of through the city to a, another part of town. And what I realized is I, I think the reason why you notice that difference between maybe Venezuela and, and the US and especially maybe a place like Houston is I think people feel more like they're in it together, I would think. Maybe, yeah. maybe in a place like Venezuela. Cause when what I've noticed, that, or I guess my profound thing that I realized is, the richer the neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, frankly the the larger the backyard, um, and the more likely to have a fence. Whereas if you go to a poor neighborhood, you actually have a larger front yard, and you have like a porch swing or a wraparound porch because you're socializing with the community. Yeah. But the richer you are, you seem to be wanting more of your own privacy. And I think that's, that's kind of shows itself in even interactions in classrooms and things yeah. like that. I mean, the richer you are, the more you have to lose, right? And, and yeah. that, that's it. If when, when you have little, 
then you also have little to lose and it, it lowers boundaries. It, it makes you more open, I think, to, to people because then, then you're not worried about what are their intentions. Like, are they hanging out with me because they want access in my backyard or are they hanging out with me because they, they, they just want to, they, they, they like me. And yeah, I think also living in Venezuela in, in, a, in a country that is so dangerous, Caracas, that's the city where I lived, which for many years still is, I think, the number one or number two most dangerous city in the world. The amount of murders that happen every day, uh, it's more than in, in a war zone. If I remember, it's on Wikipedia, it's, it's on the list. Um, so you also don't get those opportunities to, to hang out. Like you go to school and when, when it ends, either somebody picks you up or you take the bus, but you are not on the street because somebody's going to mug you. Um, there's no extracurricular activities. There's no nothing else to do. You go from your home to your school, pretty much. Uh, and and that, that's it, that, that, that's your entire <laughs> um, adolescence. Sure. And, and because it's just so dangerous, you can't really hang out the way pe people do here. So yeah, I think that makes people bond a little bit more because then if you do wanna go hang out, you need to do it in numbers. You need to like a bunch of you go so you don't get mugged, you don't get jumped. Right. Um, and uh, so Feta, we talked a lot about your growing up and things like that, but what I wanna know more about is why you decided to get a degree in electrical engineering. Like what were you good at in school? Like what, what were you like as a student, I suppose? I was, um, I did not pay attention to class. I was not a good student, definitely nowhere near uh, the straight A thing mentality. I didn't care, didn't study. Uh, you could say maybe because of the situation in the country, you don't think that you have many options because you're in Venezuela. What are you going to do with your life? Did you even think that with your parents both being kind of U.S. educated PhD? I, I thought that they had done their way and the world has changed a lot since, since they did it. And because they moved to Venezuela there were still good opportunities. The country really went down the drain from in between that time. And being chemical engineers, were they involved in the oil industry? Is that yeah, what, what brought exactly. Them? Because Venezuela okay. is, or was, <laughs> one of the biggest oil producers in the world. I mean, it's like Texas, except if the only thing Texas did was basically oil. Yeah, kind of. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing else. And, and something that is very different from here is there's no other city really that, that matters. Like Venezuela is Caracas, pretty much. If you're not there, you are like, that's it. You're, the, <laughs> there's nothing else. And the country's mostly, or was mostly an oil producing country and, and one comparable to Saudi Arabia, but in the Americas. So that's all the importance that it had. And I knew that I was not interested in anything regarding that. But I knew, or, or how I got into electrical engineering, I guess, when I was in, in high school, what I wanted to do was be a rock star. <laughs> That's really what I, I wanted to play guitar. I wanted, I, like, like we kind of talked before, I, I sort of liked the attention. Uh, and that's why like, I would butt heads with the, 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 the jocks. So when I started playing guitar and started getting more attention, I realized, okay, I like it. I like the music. I, like, I, I liked everything about it. And I said, this is, this is what I want to do. But my parents, they said, well, uh, 
you need to have a fallback. You need to have, most people don't make it in the music industry. There isn't any really music industry in this country, so. Uh, Especially not for 80s glam rock, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and there was also the uncertainty that I did not know what was gonna be of my life when I was 14. When I was 14, the military, uh, we got a call at three in the morning, that they tipped us that the military was gonna come raid our house. So I, I actually didn't have much time to think like, okay, what am I gonna do when I graduate? It was, it was a mix between I need to stay alive and them trying to figure out how to escape the country. And then it, that was almost like the finish line, just leaving Venezuela. That was the goal. Exactly, yeah. and it, it made it in a way simpler because that, that was the goal. Everything after that, I had already won. And, and it was so, again, looking back to it, it's so weird because I talk to uh, young people now and like my cousins, their kids and graduating is not the, the finish line. There's like more things to have a, a good life, right? I, I guess that's the, right. the, the thing in the mentality of everybody, how can I have a good life? For me, it was getting out of there. So everything after that was just like cherry on top. But you know what? Uh, what's interesting about that is when your goal in life was something that I suppose, like when did you want to accomplish that goal of like getting out there, out of there alive? Right. Was, was that something that you thought, hey, when I'm 18, I'm going to leave this country? Uh I guess it was, I, I, I never made the choice. It was because I was with my family and they needed to stay alive, of course. Uh, I, I just had to go with them because if they left the country, what else was I gonna do? Was I gonna stay in Venezuela? Not really. Uh, so I, I just had to, the river was taking me. I, I suppose what I'm thinking is your goal was like very short term. Yeah. Like I feel like now, because there's so many expectations, not only, hey, go to college, get a degree, get a good job, do X, Y, Z, it makes it, it, it makes your goal maybe more of like a 20 year goal, oh, yeah. which actually makes it harder to accomplish because how do you know each day if you're like working towards that goal? Whereas if your goal is, hey, I just wanna graduate high school, then it's, hey, that, that might be, if you're a 14 year old, that might be three, four years from you. And so you could have more of an impact each day, I suppose. You know, it's like incremental yeah. goals. Yeah, it, it, it's, more, it's more present, it's more immediate, and, and you, can, you can see how you have more control over it, right? Because otherwise it turns overwhelming. If you try to think, well, I need to do these series of steps to affect my life in 20 years, you feel like you have no control. Uh, and, and it's just it's, it's just overwhelming. So I also, when I moved here, I realized that there was a lot of pressure in making the right steps so you can fit in the right thing afterwards, right? I've heard that to get into a certain college, you need to go to a certain high school. To get into a certain high school, you need to go to a certain middle school. And it's like this, this trail that almost, you have to start making the right decisions so young uh, yeah. and not deviate if you wanna reach a certain thing uh, later in life. And I, I was never, I had never experienced that. When I, when I moved to the US at 17, I didn't even know which college I had applied to. I, I took the SATs not really knowing anything about them. I'm actually surprised that I got a grade 
that allowed me to get into. That's what I was thinking. Because if you only went to school, I mean, you went to school a year less, right? Basically yeah. not a senior year. Yeah. And so I'm impressed that I guess you, you scored well enough to get into a good school. You went to University of Houston. Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, one of the things you talked about too, though, just made me think about growing up in Venezuela where there's not much opportunity, yeah. right? Your goal is just to survive. Um, to me, that makes me think that a certain type of organization would thrive there, namely being gangs and, and things of that nature. Was that ever something that uh, like you came across? Were there many gangs there? or Were there, were there points in your life where you could have went down that well, path? Well, because there's so much corruption in the country, just in every sector, in every field, you, you almost accept... That, that is the reality and, and you have a cap in anything that you do. So you go in knowing that there's going to be corruption and issues and, and things slowing you down. Um, I, 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 yeah, all I wanted, like, again, when I was in, in, in middle school and high school, I figured I can sort of break free from this if I play guitar and I can be a, a rock star. Uh, and, and almost I wasn't thinking long term. Which, that's something that shifted when I moved to the U.S. I started realizing, oh crap, I need to start thinking what's going to be of me in 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, now, I don't know if that had been the case had I been young here or if it's just a consequence of just being young in general. Um, but, um, I mean, you could, yeah, anybody who has honest goals could see organizations and, and initiatives thrive in a place like that but the problem is because of the corruption and because of the environment and how dangerous it is it, it's hard to get anything real to to happen uh, they you know if you try to do anything you need government permits and then they they want their cut and er everything's like that if, if they, they budget 50 million they pocket 30 and then the rest like the cheapest way of doing it it comes out wrong doesn't happen right and it's just that, that's it. So it, it sounds like most of the businesses or organizations were corrupt, right? But were there any actual like gangs like we might have here in certain parts of the U.S. or Mexico, things like that? Were there criminal organizations uh, that you ever came across or not so much in your part? Well, it, it it's not like the um, – I guess in here, what's the uh, – like the ones from, from, from Mexico, I forget the, uh, Juarez, uh, I forget the name, whatever. Uh, it's not like that. It's just general, uh, we have a term. It's for just it. like systemic. Yes. Throughout. Yes. It, it's not like gangs, like the, the, the Crips and the whatever. Uh, it's just, I think 80, 90% of the country is below extreme poverty line. So everybody's just looking after themselves in in a way there's no like initiation like oh you need to be a part of us it's none of that it's just people are hungry and stealing is a way of of getting something um no 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 gangs just uh yeah like you said just systemic just it's just dangerous all throughout but n nothing like a gang so you said that wanting to be a rock star is what led you to pursue engineering so what's what's the connection there? so i play guitar and i wanted 
I, I got into progressive rock, which was very intricate in their sounds and, and things got very technical. And what's what's an example of progressive rock? Like what's a couple bands or, or songs? I like think? the, uh, I would say the fathers, one of the fathers, like Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd has very interesting sounds. The synthesizers. Yeah, okay. yeah. But because I play guitar, just the guitar, you know, they started with like delay pedals and, and, and multi-loop tracks and things like you, you, you were listening to a guitar and at, at moments you were like, is that even a guitar? It's just, it had so many effects. And then you get into things like Yes or Rush, more modern, like things like Dream Theater. And they just, they do very intricate things with their sound. And the way they do it was through the pedals, through the amplifiers. So I said, you know what? Well, I, I, need, I, I agree I need some sort of fallback. And I always had a, actually a tendency, a natural ability with, with math. So engineering didn't seem that far-fetched. And I said, well, I can go to electrical engineering and I could learn stuff that I could improve my guitar sound. What if I make my own audio amplifier? What if I make my own equipment? Wouldn't that be right. badass? So that was the thing driving me. And in fact, I went through engineering with that goal. It was less about the job opportunities I could have afterwards. And it was, I want to make my own equipment. And I quickly realized that none of my professors knew how to make audio equipment. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing that it was in any class, like, oh, how do you make a guitar amplifier? Um, but it did give me the tools to understand how to, how to build one. And one of my accomplishments, or something that I look back and feel grateful for having gone through electrical engineering, is I did make three amplifiers. Uh, and I, I have one at home. It was my graduation project that I did with a buddy. Um, he was also in a band. And, and we both, interesting, he's from, he, he's American. He grew up in, in I think, in, in Houston. He, he jumped around. But we had a little bit of a similar story. So we really, there was a, a kindred spirit sort of thing. And we decided to learn, to teach ourselves how to make equ uh, music equipment. Uh, right. And we ended, he, he, all, all the three of them I built with him. And the graduation project is supposed to be teams of five to six. We, nobody wanted to do anything like this. So we said, we asked for permission. We did it, the two of us. And you had to see the other teams. Like somebody had made, and this was what, seven years ago? Uh, where drones weren't really a thing. Somebody actually made a drone. And back then it was, wow. that was impressive because they had to make everything. Like how to control it right. and, uh, and all that. Another, because it was Houston, another team, they were working at NASA and this team created a shirt that had embedded circuitry in the in the threading and the t-shirt itself was a walkie-talkie and it was supposed to be used in the space station so they would have less equipment they would just like like Holy star God. trek yeah where they could just like push and talk amongst themselves like amazing projects and then my buddy and i we said we're gonna make the best audio system that has been made and that was our goal it not nothing else from a circuitry point of view matter it, the cost the weight the, the 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 amount of voltage or heat I mean all these different factors anyway I'm bringing the story because I, I went into engineering not really expecting anything out of it other than I wanted to make an amplifier and I did and I ended up winning the graduation project that year you with, beat out the drones and the walkie-talkie shirt it yeah. must have been a good amp then yeah it was it, so you know how we have high def TV. So right. there's there's something called hi-fi audio. So hi-fi audio equipments and 
uh, it was actually stored down here, uh, Bank van der Lufsen, I'm butchering the name, like speakers that are like fifty, sixty thousand dollars each speaker. So oh, Bang and Olsen. Olsen, Olsen. yeah, yeah. Um, so th there's like there's all these different parts to like an audio system is you need to simplify it you need an audio signal that is clean that was recorded cleanly so good microphones uh, that's one part and then you need the amplifier system that grabs the little bit of noise that it's getting and then increasing it without stretching it so it's like stretching a shirt without distorting it exactly so somehow right. imagine if you could stretch a shirt but you're you're adding you're just making it bigger, bigger without actually stretching the fabric. exactly exactly and then you need these the speakers in the end to be sensitive enough to to do that but anyway so we made it and we made it super high definition uh at the expense of everything else it's not really practical it weighs 100 pounds <laughs> first how, how big was it it's about this big um we had to weld aluminum sheets together. We had to custom order parts. They don't make them anymore. It, it, it uses vacuum tubes, which was the thing before. Chips, like plastic silicon My brother had a, a, an old school, like a, a Marshall, I think. Mar okay. Old yeah. school vacuum tube. Yeah. Right, I think it was vacuum tube. Right? Yeah, At least yeah, you yeah. saw them. Yeah, they look like light bulbs. Was, yeah. Right, and guitar amp, because he yeah. was also a kind of a long-haired guitar player growing there up. There you go. So yeah. But anyway, so it, it was funny to see it, that when I graduated, like, oh crap! The, the, the one thing that I wanted to do, I was, I, I was able to. That's like a trophy, I would think. Like if you played, oh yeah, like college football or something, you won like a Sugar Bowl. I feel like that was your equivalent yeah. kind of trophy. And I, and I have it at my home, and it's I play it every now and then. It's like, so it still plays. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying, like having that um, satisfaction of building something with your own hands. Right that also attracted me to, to engineering. Granted, I think mechanical engineering is, is the one that you get the most hands-on stuff, but with uh, chemical even, I made a lot, a lot of good friends in chemical engineering and they would build their own uh, beer rigs. Like they would make their own <laughs> microbreweries from the knowledge that they had learned in like uh, fluid dynamics and stuff. So is, when it comes to engineering, could could you replace the word engineering with kind of like to build things or like builder? So if you're a chemical engineer, you're building things based on your knowledge of how chemicals react. Yeah. If you're an electrical engineer, you're building things based on kind of the, the movement of electricity, yeah. right? And then if you're a mechanical engineer, you're building based on the mechanics of, of well, that, that was like, it could be from materials or stress and, and or just Like the people movement. working at like say SpaceX, those guys, Elon Musk's company yeah. sending rockets up to like Mars. Yeah. Those are a lot of mechanical engineers. And aerospace. Right? And also aerospace, like building, fabricating the actual rocket. Yeah. Is a lot of, I think, maybe mechanical engineering, but ask, but also the aerospace engineering. Yeah. Just, for, well, you, you, you trade parts with each other. Like, okay, well, you, you build, like the mechanical engineer would, you, th let's say they'll start and it's like, okay, I need something that produces enough, them with the chemical engineers, that produces enough thrust that it can go up. And then, okay, here you go. And then the aerospace, like, okay, now we need to make it 
that it can fly. <laughs> so then right. they figure out the, the aerodynamics and then they give it to the, the electrical engineers. All right, this all needs to stay connected. It needs to be controlled. It needs to have sensors. So it's like you all work together. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people get intimidated when they hear engineer. And this was very interesting, particularly because of the situation that I had grew up in, like three of my four parents being engineers, it seemed like a very normal thing to me. But then I quickly realized when I wrote as my major engineering and people would ask me like, oh, what's your engineering? Oh, what's your major? And I was engineering. Oh, wow, you must be a genius. I'm like, what? No, <laughs> I don't know how in my head, like doctors were the thing that holy crap, right. that is, you need to be so impressive to, to be a doctor because this is just so much knowledge that you need to have. Um, but for engineers, you know, it, it's funny. If you're an engineer, I, I would hope that you just get to have a lot of fun because it's, it's a lot of trial and error if you allow yourself for it to be like that. And I think something that I, I realized when I moved to the US is a lot of people want to not make mistakes. They want to hit it right every single time. Mm -hmm. And that, that mentality sets people up for failure so much and like makes them not want to try things that they might perceive difficult. And I remember like being in engineering um, school and like going to the labs and we had to make electrical circuits. And I would see others just like thinking, thinking, thinking and, and not starting creating the, the circuit because they didn't want to get it wrong. Right. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and jump on it. And I, it wouldn't work and it wouldn't work the first 20 times. And so in this boggle moment, sometimes they would make fun of me. It's like, ah, oh, you're not making it work. It's like, okay, but you haven't even started at least right. I'm getting somewhere and through the t trial and error because it, it never bothered me to not get it right. I think, you know, I, I say, I like to say the number one reason why businesses fail, mm -hmm. um, especially in the startup community, yeah. it's not because they run out of money. It's because they never get started in the first place, yeah. right? I think people are so afraid of failing, um, but you just have to think, I mean, think about any sport you played growing up. Or if you learned a guitar growing up, I mean, you sucked. You yeah. know, the first time I played hockey or soccer, I was terrible. Um, you know, the first time I kicked the ball, I probably missed the soccer net. And those things are huge, yeah. you know, but you just like keep trying and you learn from it. I mean, that's how you get better. And, and, and that's the thing, right? It's if you allow yourself to fail and that be okay, then why not try anything, right? It's just why does it have to be that 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 you that you can't fail i don't know this is the thing that i you're exactly right so many companies they just like go ahead try it learn from it and then iterate and just and just keep doing it nobody nobody is born knowing anything you know maybe i don't know i, I heard that uh tiger woods knew how to swing when he was two so maybe some people can i mean he, he just started young that's for sure i mean some people i feel like are naturally gifted but that still doesn't make them successful it's putting in the time and the practice did you when you were in high school did kids make fun of the kids that were trying because i've, I've heard that term like oh you're such a try hard you know it's funny because i don't necessarily remember that but i actually remember it now, <laughs> um, like playing, I still play hockey. Uh -huh. We actually have a couple of rings here in Austin and I still play hockey. 
and sometimes when people are trying too hard, like, you know, they'll, they'll be called a try hard. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, it's one thing, I guess, when you're, you know, you're, you have no chance of playing professionals, right? And you're just going out there for fun. And it's like, dude, like, calm down. You're not trying to, like, kill anybody out here. But, but growing up, I, I don't know if, if I remember that. Um, I, I'm sure, I mean, people got made fun of for, like, messing up, though. Right, so I think that's kind of that negative reinforcement. Yeah, that maybe you're talking about. Yeah, that that that's at what point in our you know lifetime we start to feel worried about messing up. Well, and you know what? Now it's I would say now it's even worse. Oh yeah. Because if you mess up, it's on Facebook, it's on YouTube, it's yes. on Snapchat. Um, I mean, in, in, I mean, even look, you look uh, like politicians, I mean, or, or anybody in the you know, limelight, and now it's just everybody because of social media. But if you, if you mess up, you, know, you might not live it down. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's one of the issues I have is we, and we talk a lot about like rehabilitation when it comes to like the criminal justice system and we want people to be rehabilitated. Exactly, that is and, like brought back into our society, but we're so harsh and so critical of people who just mess up in everyday life. Yeah. And we don't really give them that chance um, to, to kind of make up for it. And people now want to use, they want to be judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, it's almost like people don't deserve that, that second chance what was it um, like the Kevin Hart thing for the Oscars? Like everybody right. just dig his past, and he he explained like this is not how I feel anymore. But he still people still wanted a a pound of a pound of flesh out of him. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's just exactly. Not only are you not allowed to make mistakes now, but then if it comes to light, then you're not allowed to to grow from it, to live it down, to and, and, and that's such a weird thing that we're setting the young people like they're seeing like oh crap if I don't get it right that that's it I'm 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 done almost and if you think you know to your point about Kevin Hart and and not even him in particular but I, I think the people who are the ones who actually actually experience something themselves and like make a mistake and grow from it they're the ones who are going to do more than anybody else for that cause. I mean, just think about kind of your life story. You said, you know, you grew up, you, you were overweight, you didn't get the attention, right? And so now, what are you doing? Like, you're being like uber healthy, you know, you work out all the time. Right. Uh, you know, you're like, you're overcompensating for those things you were deficient in growing up. And it's just like people who make mistakes in their lives and grow from it. Exactly. If you never make those mistakes and you're, you know, if, if you were always fit and you never really had to try at it now, you probably wouldn't be as healthy exactly. because you wouldn't be trying so hard. You don't appreciate it. It's just, right. it's a given. And you know, it's funny, I worked at IBM for a while and I helped with hiring and the way that I got hired at IBM, funny, I graduated as an electrical engineer. Uh, so. I wanted to make audio equipment and be a rock star. Halfway through engineering, I realized it wasn't going to happen, so I had to <laughs> change my plan. And I wanted to work with uh, hardware applications of, of electrical engineering, N none of the programming. 
And I got an internship at IBM. And long story short, they told me, look, hardware is not where you want to be. Like you need to switch to, to software. And I got told this when I was about to graduate. So I'm like, okay, what am I gonna do? Like, this is what I went to school for. But my, uh, my boss at my internship, she said, I'm gonna set you up with some interviews in software. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I did not have my cap on this thing because I didn't want to make noise. That is totally just that has to be in the blooper face. reel. That has to be in the blooper reel. Uh, I think we'll just keep it in. This yeah, is just yeah, like no, real life. This is what makes. This it. is what happens. <laughs> I want to make sure my computer was still on, still recording, uh, and it looks like yeah. it is. Okay. okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. See, uh, so. <laughs> so so you were talking about IBM and oh, you yeah, talking about how I hardware got, wasn't the future yeah software. and my boss at the internship said I'm gonna set you up some interviews in the software division and I went in there and I, I had never that wasn't my thing so I sit during an interview and the entire interview is just them like okay do you know how to code this do you know how to code that I said no no it was just a long list of me saying I don't know how to do this job and yeah. at the end of the interview, the guy's like, why are you here? It's like, <laughs> good question. So you don't know anything. It's like, yeah, but I'm a fast learner. And, and I started explaining him how I, how quickly and how I can teach myself things. And I could just, I never got bogged down by not knowing. It was always like, it's either, it's going to take me, it's going to be either real quick for me to learn, or it's going to take a little bit longer, but I'll still get it. The only difference is how many more times I need to try it. And I got the job based on that. So, and, and that always stuck in my head in that somebody wasn't thinking like, I need to get the guy that knows how to code, is I need to get the guy that has the attitude to solve the problem. So like you said, like the fit guy doesn't know how to stay fit if his entire life he's been naturally fit. I mean, right? the best trainers, right, are the ones who had to overcome some sort of, exactly. you know, whether it was obesity or something to get into the shape they are now. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's the thing, like, I, I see so much that the people that experience hardship are the ones that have the frame of reference to, to then make a change in their life afterwards, right? I, like, do you feel like, well, do you feel that you had a, how do you feel about your upbringing? Was it like, would you consider harsh compared to maybe what you see now or? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's tough because of course my perspective as a white male, I think is, you know, there's a certain level of maybe like insulation I had just because of that, right? I wasn't ever a minority or things like that, but you know, yeah, we grew up in hardships and you know, definitely other kids had more money and, 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 you know, my parents, like I said, got separated and divorced and, you know, had to get food from food banks and stuff like that from time to time. But I think, you know, if it, like kind of like the comparison I like to make is when I'm, whether it's like trying to try to inspire kids to kind of dream big, achieve success in what we're doing with the foundation, I think that I'm uniquely able to communicate with these kids who are growing up in kind of low income areas because it's not like I was just born into money. It's not like I'm one of the Trump kids, right? right? Where I'm born into kind of this millionaire, billionaire family and things were just kind of more easily given to me. 
you know, I had to work for these things to make it. And so I think I could communicate with kids in a similar situation because I kind of went through a similar experience. So yeah, yeah, it's that, that perspective, that frame of reference that somebody has that makes them uh, more capable of kind of leading that change. Like another example is we were just talking. So my wife, Lisa and I, we were just talking about yesterday about a friend's, I think it's one of her friend's kids who they're going to go to some school where it's like an advanced language school. Interesting. Where I think in elementary school, they start learning Chinese. Wow. Um, and then they start learning like Spanish or something, middle school. And I was just, you know, trying to figure out like, is that really valuable? What's the reason? Things like that. And something my wife said that I thought was really interesting is when you, and, I, and I've taken German and right now I'm taking Duolingo trying to learn Spanish. <laughs> I think I hit 4% proficiency. Um, I added that to my LinkedIn profile just because I thought yeah, it was you need pretty to keep ridiculous. That yeah. um, but when you... When you learn another language, then when you're communicating somebody, even to a, a language you don't know, right? So you're still speaking in your natural language, say English, and you're speaking to, you know, let's say a Chinese person, you don't know Chinese, you might still be deciding to use words and phrases that you know are more widely known, right? Or easy, easier to translate. You're not using slang and things like that. Yeah. Now you know what it's like to learn another language. Yeah. And so you start seeing some patterns and some characteristics. So in that sense, now you're able to better communicate yeah. with an individual who, who, you know, somebody that doesn't have that experience might have a tougher time. It's it, the, the, the school situation. I think it's, it's really interesting because I've seen some schools here. Like, I, again, I wasn't um, exposed to this, like, but some schools here are like the, the honor rolls class and like right. how kids start to get separated. And I, I, I don't know if that makes any kids feel less because of that, because they don't have access to maybe some of those schools. And I, I wish that there were more things that would let kids know that, hey, it, there's actually a, a benefit or, or society really appreciates people that came from hardship and, and knows how to overcome it, right? Like I, I didn't know that I could get a job by being honest that I don't know how to do the job, right? Like it seems right. so counterintuitive, like that, that, that just can't happen. It seemed like, oh, what they value is that I know a certain thing. And if I don't know it, then I don't have access to it. Uh, so to me, that was such an eye-opening thing. And now I, when I hire people for my companies, I want to make sure that it's, it's, they don't have to be the expert at the thing. They just have to show the, an attitude and, and a mentality that they can overcome things. And the, again, the best way to do that is if I think they experience, experience it themselves. Uh, yeah, I think when it comes to jobs now, um, I, I think there's, I guess, a few things that I've learned is number one, you want to at least be able to get your your kind of face at the table, right? Or your spot at the table. Um, so like my first job was a company called Epic up in Madison, Wisconsin. And there, they would only interview you if you had a college degree and a minimum of a 3.5 GPA. That was the only way your resume was even making it to somebody's eyeballs. 
if you sent your resume in and it didn't meet those qualifications, it just got thrown in the trash. Um, so one thing I learned is, hey, you just want to know what are like what's the minimum qualification for getting a good job today, getting your foot in the door. At least for this company, it was 3.5 minimum GPA college degree. And I think now, maybe they're not all that harsh, but I think now um, it's it's having a college degree, frankly, a, a four-year degree minimum. And then the second thing is, I was just looking at some positions on LinkedIn because you get they have open job opportunities there. I was doing a little research for, for, for some people, and there was a Facebook uh, opening there. And what's actually interesting on LinkedIn, I don't know if this is all jobs, but some of them it shows the number of people who have submitted applications. Oh wow! So just like we were talking about social media being where you do you mess up, yeah. and now it's blasted across. Um, you think you know you're trying to date somebody, and now you're competing not just with the people in your neighborhood, not just with people at your school. You're competing with everybody in the city, yeah. Maybe even state, even country. I mean, there's people, you know, there's dating sites for people to meet from different countries, yeah. Right. So I mean, you're competing with tons of people, and it's the same thing in the job market. So. I was looking on LinkedIn recently and I saw a job posting for a Facebook, I think it was marketing manager, mm -hmm. and it actually showed how many people applied to the job. So it showed about 195, I think it was 195 people applied to the job. And so, you know, if you think you're the top yeah. person out of 195 people being the most qualified, then odds are you're not, yeah. right? And then also, if, if I were the hiring manager, I would be more like the guy at IBM who hired you. It's I'm not looking for the most qualified person, right? I'm looking for the person who's qualified, right? They right. have a, a the foot minimum. in the door, yeah. right? So they meet the minimum, right? So maybe in this instance, they have a college degree in some sort of something engineering. Um, or in the Facebook instance, I mean something in marketing or in yeah. business or maybe even like a psychology, something with that, that marketing you know, it, it plays a role in. Yeah. Um, but then I'd be looking for the person who really like, they're putting in the effort, right? Like they have a reason to be there. It's not, you know, somebody who's coming from nothing and doesn't want to be poor, right? It's like that's their motivating factor. Like they want to make something of themselves or they're trying to prove somebody wrong. To me, that's somebody that I think is going to put in the effort, the perseverance to, to really not just like meet the minimum qualifications and do a good job, but exceed in that role, right? And that's what you're trying to do as a hiring manager. You're trying to find somebody that not just fills a role, but ideally somebody that's going to grow within the company. Right. Somebody that, that's going to have a goal, whatever, whatever it may be, right? It could be like, maybe they want to be that, that's the stepping stone to be like the marketing director at Nike or something like right. really uh, big, but just to have some sort of drive somebody that, okay, this person it's gonna figure it out. There's gonna be issues, and he's not gonna know the the solutions for those issues. But it's gonna if if it's motivated, if that person's motivated enough, they're gonna figure it out. Yeah, and then it's you know, it's, what's that person doing in their free time? Right, right. If that marketing person in their free time is kind of building up their own website and doing this because because it's a hobby for them too. 
well then I know that person is going to actually enjoy coming into work for the most part and they're going to put in the effort. Um, but the other thing is also like who you know. Yeah. You know, that's such an important part. I know that, you know, the, the way I hired a lot of the people at, at my company was based off of referrals from other employees, right? Because there's so many, again, in the Facebook example, 195 people. Again, you need your foot in the door. You need to show that like perseverance and that passion. But how do you even get the opportunity to get on the phone with right. the hiring manager? And oftentimes that comes down to, you know, that, that person at Facebook, that gal or that guy, they don't have time to interview 195 yeah. people, even 50 people, yeah. right? They might only get on the phone with five or 10. And so how do you become one of those five or 10 people? It's, hey, I have a friend who knows that person or I have a couple friends there putting the good word for me. Exactly. And that's why I think building that network is huge. And for somebody like you who you know, didn't grow up in the US, yeah, you, know, you I had to start from it was, Exactly, it was a hard reset and I didn't have anybody that I could like even f f friends, family, and nobody could connect me. I had to build all that from, from scratch, which made me realize how important the soft skills are and just how little they, they were. I was told that I needed to, to build that when I was going to school, at least in, in Venezuela, because it is that it is something that somebody told me when I was in college is be the kind of guy that somebody wants to want to grab a beer with. Yeah, and to have that mentality whenever I I apply for a job or anything, it's not only that. Oh, I am the most knowledgeable person because that is impossible. But if you meet the minimum, and you have that attitude that all right, whatever comes my way, I'll figure out. But also that people can relate to you, that you can connect, and then build off of that as you continue your life. That's it, right? And because I think now there's not really such thing as a work-life balance. Yeah, I think just with the phones and email and all that and Slack, it's becoming it's just meshed, right? Work is life, life is work, and so you want somebody that knows what they're doing, right? But you also want somebody you can hang out with because your people at work are going to be your friends. Yeah. Right, and you're gonna start hanging out with those people more, and so you want to enjoy them. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that point's very important. I've also, and I keep seeing seeing this more and more in like the startup conversation, uh, not just in Austin but even outside, that entrepreneurs have been uh, what's the word fetishizing or just romanticizing fetishizing fetishizing <laughs> the um just the 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 sacrifice of work that oh i only slept two hours every day for a month and as if somehow that is something to be super proud of and, and it's really interesting because i hear that the both sides of the argument is well you can't build something unless you put in a lot of hard work which i agree but then on the other side these people are sacrificing it's the other things that are needed that you need right. to, it's not just putting all the hours, um, at work is you need to build the relationships. People want to be able to, to hang out with you. If you're unbearable, if nobody wants to talk to you, doesn't matter how many hours you put there, you're not going to last that long in that, in that office. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's interesting to find the combination of, of things that can make somebody get ahead based on the stage that they're in, right? The combination when you're in high school is different from when you're in college and it's different when you're out in the, in the, in the workforce. And even depending on the role that you are as you 
go through, I think we liked, I, I like to think that, okay, I finally figured out I can relax and it's, it's never like that. It's, it's always an evolution. I need to keep accepting that whatever I do next, I need to change, adjust and, um, so, yeah. so you talked about your first job out of school being at IBM. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about like, what did you do there? What was your job title? Kind of what did that look like working at a company like IBM? And was that in Austin or was that in Houston? Yeah, no, it was, it was here in Austin. In fact, that's what brought me to, to Austin. Okay. Uh, so it was an internship. It was, um, product engineer intern. So you were an intern. Mm -hmm. What, what year were you in school? Was this like in between your junior senior year? Yeah, junior senior, which was actually uh, apparently pretty late. I had a lot of people tell me that no, you should have started doing internships like freshman year, and uh, I, I I didn't realize that again. That was <laughs> closer to when I had first moved here, so I I had delayed it. Uh, I I wanted also to have a little bit of fun and not just right. think of okay, school, and as soon as I hit my breaks, I need to go do internships. So I, when I was a year, a year and a half away from graduating is when I started applying for internships with the idea of converting those into a full-time job when I, when I graduated. Uh, so yeah, I would say I was, I was a junior, and um, I applied, and I got, the, I got the, the internship because the guy that interviewed me, he, this Texas dude, he would make... Um, music equipment inside of coolers and then he would go tubing in San Marcos. Oh. So half of the cooler had his beers and the other half had a car battery and a stereo. Yeah, I've seen some of those. Uh, yeah, but he would do it himself and and when I told him like, oh, I make my own audio equipment, that's it. That got me, that got me the job. It wasn't necessarily what I had learned in school. It was just he felt some sort of connection uh, and, and it just makes you again appreciate what you were saying. Like, the things that get you jobs are not necessarily what you think. Like you need to, to have the minimum to get the foot in the door, right? Right. And then what else? So anyway. I, I think people are always trying to look for other people to connect with. Yeah. You know, and if it's something that somebody's really interested in, passionate about, you know, building coolers with you know, music boxes in them, yeah. like you have to be really interested in doing that, right? To do it like on the side while you're working at yeah. IBM. So that was something that guy was obviously interested in. And you, like the whole reason why you went to school for electrical engineering was to build like music equipment. Yeah. So when you guys kind of found each other, I feel yeah. like that's where it's like, oh yes, this is a guy I want to grab a beer with. This yeah. is somebody I want to hang out with. Hey, he meets the minimum qualifications. Or at least he's willing to put in the work and the effort. Right. Let's give him a chance. Right. Right. And he, and he was sixty years old. I want to say like he was he was an older guy. Was he was he a Latino as well? No, no. It was a white old guy. Texan. So some like sixty year old white Texan. Yeah. But you guys were still able to find yeah. this kind of mutual. And that's something passion. that um I, I really appreciate about my upbringing in Venezuela that. Venezuela has a, a more, I guess, mixed history than in the U.S. There wasn't civil rights, anything. It, uh, of course, there was racism, but nothing remotely similar to here. So indigenous people, black people, Hispanics, like it's all, it's all mixed. And so very young, 
it, 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 it got in, in our heads that, you know, you can learn from anybody. It doesn't matter. They, they didn't need to look like you necessarily. What united us was that we were all on that rocky boat that was Venezuela. Right. So um, when, when I was uh, applying for the jobs, it, it was always like I, I could, any, any one of these could be my mentors. In fact, and when I transitioned to a full-time job, uh, we had quite a bit of older Asian ladies that were killers of programming. And one of them became uh, one of my mentors. And, and how, did that, how did that happen? How did one become your mentor? So I like asking a ton of questions. And that's just uh, something that I've always done. And I like bothering people. If they give me their time, and I'm respectful of it. It's not like, um, I think a lot of people want to help each other. And they want to see progress. Well, I think also, if you're asking questions like people like feeling like important, important yeah. needed like they know all the answers so they have some some young kid coming up to them right asking them yeah. these questions it's I think a lot of people are kind of too afraid to go up to somebody they don't know yeah ask questions like look stupid or look like they're wasting the other person's time but the truth is that other person is typically super receptive of that. Yeah. It sounds like that was your experience. Yeah, and, and, and something, and IBM did a good job at this, and they, they wanted almost everybody, they would tell you, like, have multiple mentors in different areas. Have a mentor for your technical stuff. Have a mentor for how you want to get ahead in the, in the managerial part. Like, they had, in, and that's something that I really, really liked and something that I expanded into the rest of my life. I kind of have a board of directors of my life, friends from different stages of life that I can go and, and ask them uh, for advice and, and different things because yeah, people people like to be considered and they feel like oh you know my opinion is valuable. Uh, you you want to hear what I have to say. Um, something that actually when when I gave the the talk uh, a few weeks ago is I, I told the kids that hey I'm I'm you now have a connection with me like if you ever want to to ask me a question anything that I can help like I. I'm, I'm there as a resource and, right. I, and, and uh, like you said, it's, if we, people want to help. So if you, I've never seen somebody turn down being a mentor. Mm -hmm. So, but people don't, don't do it often. So if you compare that to be like, Hey, I, I can learn from multiple people, how they got to where they are in life. And maybe I can learn little nuggets from all these different people and, put them together in a way that works for me. Um, but you need to have that, that somebody share with you, not just in a classroom, like, Hey, here are the things that you have to learn from a textbook, but how did I get to a certain place? How, what, how, how did I land that job? How did I connect to this certain person? Uh, so it's something that I've tried to do since I've been at IBM is not only, not only continue to get mentors, but now start offering, my mentorship, if anybody uh, wants it. So now that I have my own connections and I have experiences and, and lessons that I've learned that I can share, uh, I'm trying to pass that along as well. So when you, so you interned at IBM, IBM. Mm -hmm. and then you graduated mm -hmm. and you accepted a full-time job. Yeah, them, at right? IBM, from the other division, the software division. So you, what was your job title when you interned? Uh, product engineering intern. Okay, and then when you accepted the full-time position, what was it? 
software engineer. Okay, so the software engineer position, how old were you when you graduated and accepted that job? Let's see, I graduated in 2012, so I was 22, 23. Okay, and what was the feeling like getting that job compared to you know, when you were thinking you were 17 in Venezuela, like that must have been. Oh yeah. Like, was, was that a big, were, were your parents excited? Were you excited? Were your friends or? Well, was I was, like, I was, I, I can't tell you somebody growing up in a third world country seeing I'm going to get paid in dollars. <laughs> do, do, do you remember how much your starting salary? Yeah, was? it was uh, 68. I think 68,000. The quick math I do to compare a salary to like an hourly rate, and it's not perfect. Sure. Um, cause it's actually a little bit higher, but I would say you, you take the 68,000 mm-hmm. and you like drop the zeros, right? Mm-hmm. So 68, 68 divided by two, that's 34 mm-hmm. and you had like 20% on. So they're like 680. So that's about like 40, $41 an hour oh. is what I kind of think the yeah, yeah, that's a good, is what you were making. So like, how did that 60, what was it? You said 60, 68, yeah. 68,000. Like, how did that compare to, like, anything that... Yeah, no, it's, it's nothing that I had. It was such a... It sounds almost dumb, but, like, a dream come true. Like, oh, wow, like, I'm now a productive member of, a, of, of a, an amazing country. Um, more money than I ever thought that uh, I could... I mean, what do people make in Venezuela? Like, what's... See, the, the, it, the way of explaining it, it's... Um, have you heard it? the Big Mac index? Yes, that's supposed to be one of the most common. Like, it, because I could tell indicators. you a number like, oh, we make the amount in, in, in Bolivares, which is over there, or even translated to, to dollars. But what you need to see is the gap between the money that you make and how much. What it goes to. Yeah, yeah, what things cost. So uh, the Big Mac index, I think, is how many hours you need to work to be able to buy a Big Mac, right? It was something like that. Um, but the, the example that I, because now I've, I've been away from, from there for so long, but by the, when I left in comparison to like when I was living there, uh, like nobody, almost none of my friends had cars or buying a pair of shoes was a, a purchase that you had to schedule. You live with your parents until you're 30 something. You only move you away. You live with your parents until oh, yeah. 30 something. There's, there's no money. Like that, that's an in, insanely expensive. Do uh, people, so like, what about, one of the things I wanted to do, I was 17, I graduated high school, I wanted to move out. That's not a thing over there. You know, and, and it was move out to live, you know, live my own rules, right? It was also to, frankly, like, be to have my girlfriend spend the night yeah. or something, right? So how does, I mean, how does that even work? So over there, it, it's interesting because I don't know if it's, the, you know, like Latino families are a lot more close together. And sure. I think it's a consequences, a consequence of society living in the, those countries being a little bit dangerous that you, you, that's, you can't do that. That's not a thing. Like living by yourself, it's, it's not in anybody's head. It's not a priority either. Um, it's, it's just what it is. It's you have to deal with it. And the only way that you're going to have enough money to live by yourself is maybe if you get a roommates or once you get married. Um, so to answer your question of the girlfriends, and this might be a little funny, uh, <laughs> over there they have uh, sex hotels that they just, they, you pay by the hour. And is there, uh, are, and it's not a, a shady 
type no, of thing. It's, no, it's, it's it like is, a common practice. Yeah, it is very, very, very common. There's, there's a lot of them, and that's what you do if you want privacy. Wow. Uh, and they're, they're very nice. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, won't, I won't go into, into detail, but um, uh, yeah, that, that's how you handle that over there. So here, like, I have enough money that I can live by myself and just like have this freedom. It's really interesting to see the opportunities that you have when you're in America compared to other places. And that's something that I really appreciate of my upbringing, that I experienced a world where there's a lot less opportunity. So everything that came my way, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna waste. And that's something that I also like to, to, to just bring to, to anything that I do and, and to share with people. I, I think it's kind of going back to like the fit person doesn't know what it's like to go work out to lose weight and become fit because they've always been fit. So you take a lot of things for granted. Similarly, um, I think uh, you grow up in, in, in America and you don't experience those things that, oh crap, uh, the, the opportunities that I'm getting here are, the, the rest of the world is fantasizing about them. Yeah, it seems like, you know, so you didn't, you, know, you didn't directly compare the, the 68,000 to like a, like a salary or something in Venezuela. But, but I think that what's really telling is like for me growing up, I talked about how I wanted money to have the opportunity to have like a stable relationship. Yeah. Right. Cause my parents fought about money to not be an issue for yeah. you. Like money was the opportunity to live by yourself. Right to not have to go to a sex hotel. <laughs> um, it was it was so money is about like opportunity. It's not about necessarily buying the newest pair of shoes. Oh yeah, it's about just the opportunity that it affords you. Yeah, right. And and that's that's something that as you accumulate more money, that frankly that's what it gives you. It gives you more opportunities. Yeah, and, and peace of mind. Right, you're not worried. An, an emergency, a medical emergency in Venezuela is just catastrophic. You don't, there's, there's no money to, to, to handle it. Uh, so it was, it was that, that peace of mind, like, oh, wow, I, I now have these, the ability to do these things. Uh, like I said, my friends, they, I guess the equivalent of a Big Mac, I'm trying to think like a more direct, it's like, imagine if a Big Mac cost, a, like the cost was $30, $40. Like that would be, that, that's how much it's eating out of your, your budget, I guess. Right, right. Um, so yeah, once I, had, when, once I got that in, and I did go a little bit crazy, so I, I bought a motorcycle. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, but the, the thing that got me most excited was uh, buying stuff for, for friends and family. It, oh, wasn't sure. e it wasn't even to necessarily to buy stuff for me, it was just like, now I can buy stuff for, for people. And, some friends that back in Venezuela now I had opportunity to help them if if, if they needed something. So right. um, it was it, it was it was it was yeah life changing just to see like oh wow like I'm 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 set in in a way. Once again, I was almost like I reached the finish line, which is something that I see yeah. causes a lot of trouble in internal turmoil in people in America. That the finish line seems so far away. The finish line is I want to be. A millionaire with a yacht and I want all these things and it just it keeps it, the every day that you're not there it's just like ah, I'm still not at my 
at my at my at the finish line. Right. But for me, just getting here, that was a finish line. It's like, oh, great, fantastic. And then getting a job that paid like sixty-eight. I was like, I could conceivably stay there for the rest of my life, and I could I could live a, a decent, decent life. Good life. Oh yeah. Certainly way better than the life I was gonna have in Venezuela. So already I was like, oh. I, I even reached a second finish line. So it everything that comes later, it's almost like, again, it's just more cherries on top of the... Of so the are you somebody who constantly has new goals then? Like once, so once you got the job making 68,000. Yeah. Did you then, you probably, you know, rush in the moment for a bit, but then did you kind of have another goal? Okay, now my goal is to do X. Yeah, and, and something that uh, I see is apparently naturally every two three years I change goals and I see it so uh, now if we start putting everything together I wanted to be a rock star <laughs> that didn't happen but I grabbed something from it which was the making the audio equipment right. so I chased that uh, turns out there weren't any jobs in audio equipment so I changed that a little bit into hardware applications I went down the route got the internship at IBM for hardware and I actually uh, when I was in that internship, I wrote, I taught myself how to program to fix something that was just a job that nobody wanted to do in, in the department. And I was just like, I, I could try and, and, and see if I can do it. And programming gave me the opportunity to try and fail a lot of times very quickly. Because you write the program, you run it, doesn't work. It works you make it. a change and you run it again. And that's what then shifted my attention to it that I, I, I was interested that holy crap because in hardware it might take a long time to build yeah. it to even and test if, it and if you and, and if you do it wrong you might damage stuff so it's, it's expensive too you don't have the opportunity to to fail and what I said at, at, at the class a few weeks ago is I love failing it's the best thing you learn something from it so then programming gave me that opportunity so anyway from that then I got the job, uh, I, again, I, I didn't know almost nothing, and, but I still got the job for programming. And then I started, I, I wanted to go up like the chain at IBM. Uh, I realized that wasn't gonna be the case. I, uh, the red, amount of red tape and bureaucracy in that company was just too much for me. I mean, they're a huge company. Yeah, right. but um, that's a separate conversation. Uh, but then I was like, well, I'm young. Uh, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. I don't have that many responsibilities. So why not jump into the entrepreneurship world? Um, so anyway, it's just, it's been like almost every two or three years I've been changing that goalpost. But instead of necessarily grabbing the same goal and moving it forward, it's been kind of like a deviating path. Uh, right. So instead of like, Oh, now I want to be within IBM. I want to be um, in this position. It was like, well, now I want to try to make my own thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I do enjoy setting goals, but like short-term goals. And, and luckily enough, I've been able to achieve all of them because I ha I've been sending them more close to, to, to my reach, right? And, and, sure. And that gives more me... Obtainable. That gives me a sensation like, okay, I can, I can do things. So, I mean, I would, of course, I have a long-term goal. It's like, oh, I would love to have <laughs> $10 million. But then that's just a thing that could get me depressed over time because like, 
I'm not there yet. I mean, going back to the whole fitness thing, if you're trying to lose, say, 20 pounds, right? You know, it, it's good to say, hey, this first week, I'm going to try to lose a pound. Exactly. Right. If, if you're instantly just your your measure of success is 20 pounds, you're successful or not. There's a lot of there's a very high probability that you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. But if if you have this long term goal, but you say, hey, my goal. You don't even think long term, right? Just think short term. My goal is let's lose a pound this week. Yeah, you lose that, great. Now, now think about your next goal, exactly. um, and then they just build on top of each other, and then that gives you that confidence to to continue to set goals and maybe even more ambitious goals. Exactly. Um, now, something that I I did realize how living in the U.S. is because of the pressure of of everything. Kind of what we were saying before. I started to notice I was getting depressed or with myself with not achieving these 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 things because that that's what everybody's doing. It seems like you you look around and everybody is getting to these things and not you. And maybe it's just what social media is doing and like you you see like the, the whole keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, it's the so. highlight reel of everybody. And 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 I've seen and people that I know like then they start to like, oh, I need to fix my goals or I need to take shortcuts. And it's, it's, it, I've seen this weird just change of, of how people are, are, are dealing with that, how they want to live their lives based on how others are, are living theirs. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to, to just disconnect from that and just keep focusing, okay, this is, these are my goals. This is what I want to do. Not the, other people's. Best example is, Again, the fitness. I I go to a CrossFit gym here that it's CrossFit Central. They are, I think, one of the first 13 CrossFit gyms in America. Like they're, now they're, there's just, I mean, yeah. thousands. But they're, like they're, tens of thousands. they're yeah. really well respected. I don't know if you know anything about CrossFit. Uh, there's uh, Rich, Rick Fronin is like the main guy there. And he, he actually swung by about a month ago or so. So anyway, when I go work out either there or Gold's Gym, it's the top of the athletes in that so you go work out and you're like oh i mean it's, maybe it's what happened to you like you go and you bench like you're benching i don't know 255 and you're like oh i feel good and then what's, somebody what's comes. A, i have to ask you so what's uh what are your um like personal records that you're like really goals. proud of that no no not goals but like no that i achieved like, hey i could bench more than most people like what what are things you're really proud of from the but see, so, so that's the thing i thought that Oh, like I thought I was gonna feel good about reaching like a, I think my my max bench has been like two sixty, but then there's like six other guys that are almost put, warming put up with this, the two sixty, yeah. right? And and it's just like ah oh, crap, I'm I'm nowhere. But what you said, I wasn't considering. It was like oh well, I'm benching more than so many other people. But what I ha what I would see was the ones that would bench more than me, which was a way 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 smaller uh, group. And so it's just that little example that there's something about America that incentivizes people to do their best. And that's why America has the most Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel Prize winners uh, and just so much of the best of the world being created here. But it's a double-edged sword because it pushes people for the best that they can do. But it also makes you feel a little bad about yourself if you don't and you always feel that you're catching up well you know it's, it's funny it made me think i talked about my first job at epic mm -hmm. and everybody type a personalities 
they're all young 20s, mm -hmm. like 90, 95% of the people Epic hires are straight out of college. Okay. Right, and again, these are all people, at least a 3.5 GPA, I think they've actually lowered it a little bit just because now they're a much bigger company. So gotcha. You need to let more people in, but so they're all like really smart, mm -hmm. uh, really aggressive, and being in your early 20s, they're all trying to move up yeah. kind of that corporate ladder as quickly as possible. And you know, I, I've never really thought about this, but as we were talking, it made me think that, you know, I was a little disappointed myself that I wasn't really moving up yeah. as quickly as some of my peers. And, you know, that was something that, that I've always like in those situations, I try harder. Yeah. I don't necessarily get discouraged from it, but you know, something else that I think I've, I've realized is everybody has a unique perspective, mm -hmm. right? And I talk about my unique perspective being growing up and having, you know, accomplished a lot professionally and now trying to share that with people in a similar situation. But, you know, you could either, you know, you could either retreat, which isn't good, yeah. or you could step up to the competition and try to compete or another option that maybe for the people who, who don't like as much competition or... You know, they don't have as aggressive personality or they would typically be the ones who would retreat mm -hmm. is like pivot right and like what I did is you know what I'm not moving up this ladder so I'm going to actually use that knowledge though and start my own business right. doing something where I'm leveraging that knowledge but actually I don't have to compete with exactly. these people you know and maybe these people are smarter than me right and maybe they are harder working and you know that's why they're succeeding and you know what maybe that's not the place for me to compete maybe i'll start my new my own game right and exactly compete on this new playing field exactly yeah and it i think it's it's hard you you don't hear that a lot you, you see a lot of the conversations are like especially in the startup world everything is like oh i just hit it out of the ballpark and then you start feeling like oh i don't have what maybe what it takes and it's just like well Try something, change, pivot, change the rule of the game, make it work, how can it work for you mm -hmm. under your rules uh, and and then just give it a go, right? What, what do you have to lose? And again, that, that, that's that's my thing and I can see it how it's just because of the the experiences that I had that I, had, I started so far away from the finish line and and but then all of a sudden I was there, everything else is just... A cherry on top so now I can just like try if it doesn't work then okay that wasn't the thing for me pivot change and keep trying keep failing keep trying it's just eventually I'll get to something and I well, it's been leading me to like small wins and just keep building from them to keep moving forward so let's let's talk about some of those so um, real quick, tell me like what what was it you were doing as a software engineer at IBM? What's like a, an example of something you were doing? So um, we would program the infrastructure for the internet to sit on. So if you have an app on your phone, um, your 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 phone is acting as an intermediary with a, a server somewhere. If you maybe seen it on like movies and TVs, like these computers that are the size of like refrigerators, yep. they're the ones handling everything. The phone is just a little conduit of grabbing what you're, what you're so typing. So like, let's say I'm on Snapchat, mm -hmm. right? And, and I snap a photo. Right. That photo is going back to the exactly. server. So your phone is taking the, the, the photo and then 
you know, that applies a filter, whatever, but then you send the photo over the internet to these servers. And then the servers, uh, the Snapchat application will do what, what it does. So like grab it and then see, okay, you're sending this picture to this contact and I need to match it and then send it. So that's all the Snapchat application. All that is sitting on top of servers. So we would program the servers that handle that. So, uh, yeah, that that's it, it was the 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 systems that kept the. So internet what were you running. using? Like a lot of like problem solving skills, a lot of math. What was it that you know you would say you were? The, what part of your brain yeah, were the you number using? one skill, and a lot of people think like, oh, engineering and and programming is a lot of math, and sure, but mostly mostly is having a problem solving mentality is you just think of anything so we would say like okay we need to make it that if a server goes down another one can pick up all the traffic that is coming from snapchat without losing anything because servers go down all the time so imagine if you were sending a picture of snapchat and one out of ten times you would have you had to do it again because the right. server went down so it's yeah, a bad experience it. that would suck it would be a bad experience for the customer so then we would think okay so we we come up with this idea so we have multiple servers not just one if the if one dies and traffic is coming to it how to reroute it to another one and the person the 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 customer user wouldn't experience any loss of service so then you start from that and then you're like okay what do we need to do to make this happen and then you start uh going down like the different paths so what you can what can you do how it would behave uh, how you can make it happen? What do you need to make it happen? And and then you have ideally at the end, like after several days of, of planning and thinking and discussing with your with your team, uh, a couple different strategies, and then you start testing, implementing a few, and then you see which one. If, if first of all, if if they work, and it would be great if at least one of them works, and then you pick that, that one. But if you have more, then it's okay, which one performs better than the other? So the, the, the only real skill that I felt I was using constantly, was, it was that problem solving, just how to break down anything that you do into a series of steps. And it's been a very useful skill in life. And it's, it's, it's a weird thing because you don't think about it uh, to think of life in, in, in those terms, but it could be if you want to... I mean, we were even talking about you know making $10 million. Yeah. Right? And breaking that down into smaller steps. So, it, it, yeah, it helps with that skill. It's just everything. It's almost like Lego, basically. You see like the finished thing. It's like, oh, wow. But then you go step by step, putting the pieces together. Uh, so and, and that's what like engineers, from my understanding, whether it's chemical engineer, electrical engineer, what have you, it's really teaching your brain or training your brain to think in more of that problem-solving right. mindset, yeah. right? And so I think that's why you know somebody who was electrical engineering could get into software development, right? Because it's it's using that same critical thinking, like part of the brain that now you've been trained to think that way for a handful of years in, in school. And that's why I think like engineer is such a not a, almost not a real term because it almost everybody should learn or in, in, in a lot of other professions they're learning how to solve problems it's just in, in the case of chemical mechanical electrical engineers specific to certain things like uh, 
liquids and, and, and chemicals and chemical engineering, uh, engines and mechanical, electrical stuff and electrical. Um, but it, so it applies to so many different things in life. It's just that, exactly that solving, thinking of ways to solve a problem and you don't have to come up with the best one or even one that works at the beginning. It's just a way to, a way to create a plan, test it, see the result. If it works great. If not, do it again until, until you do find a, a, a solution. So you were at IBM for how long? Was it four years or three years? Yeah, three, four years. And you decided to leave IBM. It sounds like bureaucracy was a thing. Yeah. Um, but you decided to leave to start your own company. Yeah. Right? Full Fridge? No, Taste Griffey was my first company. What's the name again? Taste Griffey. So like taste photography, Griffey. but with taste. Okay, that's right. So do you remember how much you were making at IBM when you left? Yeah, it was, it was close to 80. So close to 80,000, you decided, you know what? I don't care about I'm money. <laughs> throw that out the window. Yeah. And I'm going to start this company. Um, what, why did you do that? Like what was, you know, what was going through your head that made you take that leap? Well, so like I said, because I already felt that I had achieved what I wanted out of life. It gave me the freedom to, to try stuff. I always felt that if it didn't work, first, I could, at least I could tell myself that I tried. Uh, but second, I would, I couldn't land anywhere worse than Venezuela. <laughs> right. No matter what happened, it was never gonna be as bad as that. So, the thing that made me pull the trigger was well, I don't mind putting myself in uncomfortable situations, and maybe if like life gets a little tough, if it's just me, no problem. Once you introduce a family that's depending on me, then I, it's not just. I can't make decisions just on my own. That would be selfish. I need to consider them. So you thought you were, if you were at IBM three, four years, so you're probably 25, 26 at this yeah. time. And you're thinking, you know, I, I don't have dependents, right? I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. This is the time yeah. to do it. So what, um, and since Taste Taste I know. Taste We realized that the name was a bad name. Since Taste uh, you then launched Full Fridge. Yeah, now Full Fridge. you have a new company, Sigma Lion. Sigma Lion. And so on all these, where you've been the founder and or co-founder, yeah, right? on and all the three. CEO running the business. So what is it about entrepreneurship that that you enjoy? What's what's it like? Well, the thing about the main thing about entrepreneurship that it, it's this thing that keeps bringing me back is having the ability to create something which was the thing that took me out of IBM I wanted to do more I wanted I was working nights I was working weekends and I wanted to make more and I would get stopped my manager would be like no don't and just all these different things and I was just like what it sounds like there you're solving IBM's problems right whereas you wanted to and, and maybe you were only solving the problems that they wanted you to solve Right, sure. and so you were limited in the problems you were able to solve, and with your own business, I get to choose the problem, right? That I want to that want to solve. But actually, I would even say I like the problems that I was solving at IBM, but I was I was slowed down. I wasn't allowed free reign to to go and tackle them. And even when I when I did, then it was almost like brushed to the side. So then I was like, no. So that was a big component. And then of course. I get to, to decide the problem. So my passion has been food since since I was a, a little kid. So it's music, uh, 
when I was a teenager, but food had always been like a very important thing in my life, and that's why I was 190 pounds. More so to the yeah. like the Latino yeah. community as well, right? Food's more of a integral part. I mean, a lot of cultures, Italian culture. I mean, yeah. it's it's just more part of your daily life. It it's is not, a center of the family in the day. Do. It's yeah. just part of you. Yeah. yeah. So the first company was. Well, how can I mix this passion and my expertise now that I have from IBM? So we created uh, a machine learning tool that would understand the taste profile of each person to recommend them what to eat. So it was like, you know, Pandora, Netflix recommends you movies and music. Sure. This would recommend you dishes at restaurants based on, on an algorithm that, that we created. Um, we launched that 50,000 users in, in two, three months, got named one of the wow. best eight launches in 2015, that was the year, and one of the top 50 companies to watch out in Austin the next year. Um, unfortunately, we were three partners. The third partner created a situation that killed the company. So we, we were forced to shut down, unfortunately. Uh, but I had learned from everything else that, okay, what did I learn? Kind of like what you said that, when you were in, in, in that first Epic company, I was like, okay, what can I use from what I learned and take it somewhere else and, and make it work for me? So we took what we learned, then we had met a, an amazing chef and his wife from doing that first company, and then we created Full Fridge. Uh, and then we did that for about a year and a half, and things were going great. Unfortunately, the Blue Apron IPO and Amazon buying Whole Foods kind of create just this perfect storm that some really strong competition. Well, and not just competition for customers, but competition. If you think about like for funding, right? Yeah. To, to raise money. It was. It was just. It created a landscape that made it seem like, oh my god, this company is not going to thrive, and it was. And it was hard to argue against it. So, we saw like, yeah, we we can see how that's the case. We ran out of money. It's like, okay, we're not going to beat that dead horse. Shut it down, and then we went back to people and asked them, okay what exactly happened there and again apply the same concept it failed we had to shut it down but what can we learn from it and take it to maybe some sort of pivot so in that case was how can we it was understanding from the investors that we were pursuing what what they were using to understand if a company would succeed or not and then we saw an opportunity that okay well how is there a way of automating this that an investor can see it for every company. And then Sigma Lion got created out of it. So all of this to say that it's been companies that I've had to close, but I've always been able to like, okay, this happened, life happened, what can I learn from it? And I've been able to take a chunk and move it to the next thing. And somehow out of failures, I keep moving forward. Do you ever uh, regret leaving IBM? Do you, do you sometimes think, man, what if I just stayed? Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And I, I think that's a part that I get crucified by a lot of entrepreneurs that you're supposed to be like, no, entrepreneurship was the best thing. And, and nobody likes to talk about difficult part or the, the, some, the doubts and the regrets and the, right. the, the nights that you're like sweating <laughs> uh, because you're running out of money. Uh, so yeah, no, definitely. A lot of times, um, actually, when I was at IBM, I had bought my own place and I was 25. I was in a, in a relationship that we were heading towards marriage. I had a car, a motorcycle. My life was set at 25. Right. 
and I threw all that out the window. The relationship ended also because of that. I had to rent out the house to pay the bills. I had to sell my car. And sometimes I look back and it's like, wow, I literally threw a perfect life out of the window. So yeah, a lot of times I think, did I, did I, did I do the right thing? And, and then I remind myself, like, I was already kind of feeling bored (laughs) when having all that. And I much rather, I mean, we all just have one life. Why not try to make the most of it? Not just for me, but to leave something. And entrepreneurship gave me that opportunity that I could try to tackle problems that uh, other people are, are experiencing. Maybe I can leave something greater than, my, than myself as I live through life, even if it's at the expense of mine in, in a way. But once again, it was never, I was never going to land worse than Venezuela. So I almost have always felt like I don't have anything to lose. Like if let's say none of my companies work out and I truly end up on the streets, I can use, I mean, I've gotten job offers at the White House. So I know that I can at any moment get myself back on, on my feet. Sure, maybe I lost some time or some money that I could have had having worked at IBM that entire time. But um, to me, the, the better reward was to create things and do things and solve problems uh, and entrepreneurship gave me that and it's, it's kind of time sensitive because like you said you're getting offers right now if you wanted to join another big company yeah and kind of jump back on that road maybe behind from where you would have been yeah you still have that opportunity yeah. and frankly the things you learn now could probably help accelerate your growth than if you would have just stayed right um, do you so for taste crispy <laughs> did you did you raise money no we were uh, we were going to do that after launching and after showing like, okay, we have 50,000 users, we, you know, prove that the market is there. That that's my mentality for any company. So luckily we didn't raise because since we were forced to shut down, uh, that would have been a mess. But for full fridge, you we, raised money. We tried. You tried. Uh, we were raising 400,000. Um, and, uh, we, we managed to get or get offered 200,000. And we actually, we rejected it. We said, we know that we need 400. We are not going to risk your money. Like we know that if we take 200, yeah, it'll keep the company going for maybe a year or two. But it won't get you to the point you would need to be, to maybe be self-sufficient. Exactly. Or be sustainable. Or, or get anybody anything. And and, I, and this is something in, in my, my way of being like, I can't look somebody in the eye and be like, yeah, I'm going to take your money knowing that I'm just going to use it and not give you anything in return. So I, I, I couldn't take that. I, I knew that was gonna be the case. Even if it was better for me, like, okay, I'll have a job and a salary for a year. That, that wasn't, that was What about with Sigma Lion, your current venture? Yeah, so, and that's the part that showed me that even though I've been failing, shutting down companies, I'm, I'm moving forward because once we started um, saying, doing the rounds and understanding why the investors got scared with the full fridge situation, uh, we started having the conversations like, well, would you like a tool that would analyze companies uh, for you as they're uh, applying for money? And they said yes, but once again, you need a product market fit. You can think of any technology, but if nobody's willing to pay for it, don't waste your time creating that company, right? Sure. So the way that we tested that was like, okay, well, if you like this idea so much, 
we're going to need money up front. And we were able to actually, for the out of three companies, the first one had made 50, had gotten 50,000 users. The second one had made over uh, almost a quarter of a million dollars in sales. The third one, no company, there was no incorporation, there was nothing. There was, it was just an idea on a piece of paper and we were able to raise money. So it showed me that I'm I must be doing something right that at least my reputation or how people are perceiving me sure. is working towards my, my growth as a, as a professional. Did you know that growing up in Venezuela, did you know that you could someday have an idea, just an idea like you said, and convince people to give you money? Mm -mm. Was that, did you even realize that was a, a path to building a business? Actually, even, interestingly, since my parents have all been engineers and, and like true engineers never think of entrepreneurship. Uh, my, my parents would say like, oh, Fede, we're terrible business people. If we ever made a business, it would fail in the first month. Like it was, it was, it was actually a conversation that we would have in our household, how we are more of the scientist engineer type. We don't handle the business stuff. So I grew up thinking that I grew up in fact, even when I got to IBM, I said, fantastic. I'm going to be a company man. I'm going to stay here until I retire. That, right. that was my dream up until 25, not even for a moment did I think. I am going to be the businessman, the, the, the getting money from somebody into a company that I created. Never. That, that, not in Venezuela, not even after Venezuela. It took meeting my now co-founder, Mukshika, Mukshika Sharma, that we met at IBM. She was the one that showed me that, <laughs> that version of life. So if it hadn't been for her, I probably still would be at IBM. Wow. So what, um, so now, you know, we, we've talked about how you keep setting these goals for yourself, right? And it sounds like you're enjoying this entrepreneurial path. There's ups and downs, yeah. but it's, you're continuing to make progress. Uh, what, I guess, when we look at not just your professional life, but personal life, you know, you said when you left IBM, that kind of was the end of that relationship you had, you know, so like what's. You know, what's your outlook there or what's, what's your goal on your personal life? Obviously health is something yeah. we've talked about. Uh, personal life, well, I'm turning 30 next week. So I'm freaking out about that uh, because now I see most of my friends, they're married, they have kids. And I have seen that because of pursuing the startup life, I had to sacrifice a lot in my personal life as well. People would have time, would have money and for when you're doing this, you have to put in the time and a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, a lot of, a lot of saying, no, I can't go. No, I can't do it. Uh, when your friends ask you out. So it does, it has been taking a toll in my life that I, I accepted going into it. Now I'm trying to ask, I'm building something that's getting more stable. And now I have a little more flexibility and time to put into that. So, uh, I've been putting in the time to go on dates and try to meet somebody and then, trying to be a good friend again I, I realized um I, I i was a bad friend for a while because i kept saying no and people kept inviting me inviting me and, and i realized okay i, I need to <laughs> fix that a little bit fix right. some some of those relationships so right now my goals and in, in the personal part of life is i, I would like to settle down <laughs> in the next few years uh 
I think life it's more enjoyable when you have somebody to share it with and also try to not um, forget about my friends that I, I kind of been for 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 a while so yeah it's just to trying to recuperate a little bit of a of a normal life and I think I had this mentality that I wanted to be uh, Tony Stark or Elon Musk and just like right. go for the, the gigantic goal. And I realized, you know what? It's not going to happen. And that's okay. That That's not a problem. I still can have a really good life without having to sacrifice everything else. And maybe those guys, I mean, I've heard from, from interviews with Elon Musk that he sleeps in his office and he's gotten divorced like two times. So he's he's paying the price. For, I think he remarried an ex, something and then, like, like that. Divorced again. The first ex so. published a book about their relationship, and it, it's actually really interesting because again, you see a lot of like entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, like it's almost like the the ultimate entrepreneur. And then she published like what's really happening behind the scenes and how the cost for him to to have become that. Right. And that's when I've had to in the recent years say, you know what, maybe. Maybe being a billionaire is not <laughs> um, the the goal, but maybe I can be a millionaire and 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 still have somewhat of a of a normal life. So yeah, and just keep going on Tinder and Bumble dates, <laughs> uh, working out and uh, and and try to try to have a a, a more rounded life, uh, sort of. Sure. As much as I can. I do while trying to make a business happen. So, um, what what's the what's the fascination with making like millions? Is it like you talked about when you got your first job, you wanted to you know help out some some friends and family? Yeah. Is it because you want to buy a big house or a boat, or you don't want to have to work? Like, what's what's driving you to kind of have that goal now? There's, there's a couple things, you know, financial freedom means different things for different people. So for some people it's buying like the latest and greatest and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that mentality. Uh, for me, I, I do want a Lamborghini. That is my dream in life. Since I was seven, <laughs> I, I've been wanting what, a Lamborghini. What kind, what color? Uh, I will like that, that um, the yellow version. It's like a, like an intense yellow. The, 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 back then it was the Countach that, that I used to Did like. Did it start from, I think like one of the first times I saw one. I think it was Dumb and Dumber with oh. Jim Carrey. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was a yellow one, but they show up, I think, like in a Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, in my case, uh, it was a video game, Grand Theft Auto, Vice City. Oh, sure. Uh, and they had, like, the, the Lamborghini Countach. And, and, and I remember seeing it on, like, a few shows. And so it's, it's been evolving. The Gallardo, I think, would be the, or the Murcielago, I think, I would like. I actually drove one in Vegas, and... It was a, a on, the, on the racetrack. Yeah. Oh, I've done that. It was a That's spiritual, fun. it was a spiritual moment in my life. But anyway, uh, I would like to buy that. But aside from that, there's two things: the freedom of exactly what you said, like the 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 peace of mind that money brings you. In your case, that you know you it meant not fighting in 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 your household. For me, is I I want to make stuff and I want to not worry about money. I want to have the freedom that maybe money is, I already created something that is generating enough passive income that I can then go in and try to make things and not, not worry about 
the money aspect. Exactly. Uh, that one part. And then I, ideally, if I can help out financially others. And I, I find this conversation interesting because a lot of people then go, well, why don't you make an, go the nonprofit route? And then I think, well, the world works with money. And if we want the world to work and not depend on charity and handouts, is there a way that I, I can show that making money and people living comfortably can coexist? Which was a little bit of the mentality behind Full Fridge, right? It was selling food for $5 a meal, and we right. even wanted to see if we could lower the price. So we were, for the three months that we were at our best, we had, what was it, 46% profit margin? So we thought that was fantastic. But then some investors or some people said like, well, why don't you try to go for 80%? And, and th then th there was no right or wrong, wrong answer in my, in my mind. I said, well, I can feed these people for $5 a meal and still turn a profit. I think that's good enough, right? Sure. But then they were like, no, raise the money, raise the cost or lower how much it's costing you to make the food. And, 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 and it's interesting because I've had people tell me like, well, you made the wrong decision because you have to shut down the company. I said, no. Had I changed anything, that would have been not the company that I wanted to make. So anyway, um, I, I, I kind of that's my, my mentality that I, I would like to help the world somehow, some way, if it, either through a company or if I can go philanthropist because I have that much money. Uh, but from the stuff that I had experienced in Venezuela, it, it doesn't make sense to me that there, there's so much out there that we could be doing that we all enjoy a, a more even life between our, our, ourselves. Like some people are just starving to death and some people have more money that they can spend in a lifetime. You know, why can't we try to equalize things a, a, a little bit more? Doesn't mean that don't try to go for, for money, but Again, what can we do for for others? That I guess that that's what yeah, I'm going at. I think just talking with you and learning more about your story, a lot of it comes full circle. And I think that's right. what most people, right? Like a lot of it comes off after your formidable years growing up. Yeah. You know, if you think about a lot of the things we talked about today, it's you know it does come full circle to growing up in Venezuela. Yeah. You know whether it was not being that soccer player that got all the attention, or living in a country like Venezuela where you have extreme poverty. Um, I have to ask you uh, about your tattoo. Oh yeah. I don't know if uh, it's, it might be a little hard to see, but but what's the story behind that one? So this is this is my dog. So it's uh, it's my dog and my mom's uh, signature. And actually, uh, in two days, I'm flying to California to finish the rest of the forum uh, with a couple more things. So wow. I doing entrepreneurship has been or doing startups has been the most difficult thing I've done in my life. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, and you bringing up like the full circle, like living in Venezuela was dangerous and I've seen people get kidnapped in front of me. I've seen people get killed. I've had to run from bullets. And yet the most difficult thing I would say is being an entrepreneur because of the mental taxation that it has on you. That, and I wouldn't, I would have given up a long time ago had it not been for my mom. She, she really, cheered me on it was um has been very supportive uh but also my dog <laughs> and it was just 
so many hard days, so many difficult conversations, so many moments that you don't win. And I got back home and my little dog was there. Uh, and just like, no matter how horrible the day was, he was there and he would make me feel uh, like the world wasn't that, that bad. And I thought, you know what, I, I want to keep that for the rest of my life. And he's a small dog and, you know, they have shorter lifespans than we do. And uh, I didn't want to wait until he passed before getting the, the, the tattoo. So he's seven now. He's still alive. So when people see us like, oh, I'm so sorry your dog died. I'm like, no, 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 he's still, he's still there. Um, well, so, I think that's great. You have your mom on there and your dog both still alive, right? You're celebrating yeah. them while they're still exactly, alive. So exactly, exactly. So, that's great. you know, when I'm lifting weights... Uh, I can see like my mom's signature, whatever, like since I work with my hands. Um, and the other two that I'm getting in, in a few days, it's, um, it's an octopus because my, my heritage and uh, my, my grandma and my mom and all of my family is, is from Spain and we're from a part of Spain where um, food is very important. That's how I, I got into that. And uh, octopus is the, the thing that we eat and it's just, it's, it's, it's very important in, in that area. Um, uh, grabbing uh, a longhorn skull, but not in a in a in a dark way. It it, it, it it looks really nice. So then I want to celebrate also that like the heritage where I come from and, and where I am now. Sure. Um, and I've always been fascinated in tattoos, and it, it's almost a way of like planting that flag that I'm going to be my own boss. Or and I like the idea of being my own boss because you know traditionally people think like oh if you have a tattoo visible tattoo you're not going to get hired right that's like been sure, the stigma right. so I kind of like okay no then I'm going to continue being my own boss and I'm, I'm drawing that line in the sand by having my forearm fully tattooed right um, that's cool I like that yeah um, well great having you today Feta thank you for having thanks for sharing your story anytime Thank you for listening to The Power of Storytelling with Shane Adams. Today, Federico showed us how we shouldn't be afraid to fail and take risks. It often leads to learning valuable lessons and furthering progress. He also discussed how achieving small goals can lead to greater happiness. Feta shared with us the tips and tricks he learned while becoming an entrepreneur. Anyway, if you like our show and want to know more about the foundation, check out www.slayfoundation.com. That's slafoundation.com. Leave a comment on the episode webpage or a review on iTunes. Join us next week for another episode of The Power of Storytelling. We're making a change for those facing pain. We're paving the way for high schoolers today. Slave Foundation. We're going to make a change. Slayfoundation.com.